Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Welcome to those of you who are uh, tuning in online or by podcast. We are continuing our teaching series today uh, called Branch Out, and it is has a an immediate personal application to all of us, and it also has an application for us as a church about our vision to continue branching out from our place of health in Jesus into the communities and the neighborhoods that we serve in the intention that people who are outside of God's kingdom can be welcome to come in and make their home in God's kingdom together with us. And so we've been looking at as at the tree, the actual botanical tree, as an image or an idea or an illustration of what healthy Christian growth looks like, of what kingdom, how God's kingdom grows and expands, and we're trying to to pull out from that uh, as much application as we can to make value into our lives. We uh, started last week just looking generally at the how the tree teaches us the three directions that healthy Christians grow. And by means of review, do you remember Christians grow down, Christians grow up, and Christians grow out? Yes, and I have been not doing good on my New Year's eating, and I'm definitely seeing the growing out going on. But fortunately, we've got 21 days of prayer and fasting coming up, so we'll get, we'll get back on that in just a moment. Uh, just before we get into the, to, the, to the message this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 4, the Gospel of Mark chapter 4, so you can find that in your Bibles. Do want to encourage you to join with me uh, throughout this weekend. Many of us will have the day off on Monday in observance of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Uh, I know our offices will be closed here. It's a federal holiday. Kids will be off of school Monday, and I know y'all are praying that they'll be off Tuesday too um, with the weather coming in. But something that I know both of my boys at school, they are learning a lot about Dr. King and about his um, what he stood for and about things that he valued and why his life and the causes that he championed, the, the necessity for that, and how, uh, how that work is still going on today. And that's part of who we are as believers. The New Testament is very clear that when Jesus died on the cross, he intended to reconcile all men to himself and with each other, to break down every dividing wall that even in Jesus' day, and, and, and very obviously during Jesus' day, had a lot to do with race and ethnicity, men and women. And uh, he said, listen, there's a new way of relating to each other in my kingdom. God is our father, and we're his kids. And if we're all kids of the same dad, then we relate to each other not as insiders and outsiders, but we relate to each other as brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder, as equals who sit around the same table. And so this holiday gives us, especially as believers, an opportunity to pause and to consider, God, how can you continue to use my life as an instrument to model your kingdom values in the way we relate to others? How can you still use me to do that? To, to ask God if there's anything in our hearts that are getting in the way of that, what needs to be rooted out, and also to show us opportunities right in front of us where God can continue to use us to live out. And we're thankful for the life of Dr. King and so many others who, who grabbed onto that cause and were willing to put that forward and endure a lot of difficulty because of that. And so I'm thankful for the progress that's being made. I'm thankful that it's all fulfilled in Christ, but we need to grab onto it. So just encourage you at some point this weekend, 
when you have a little time, just to reflect on that together with the Lord. Lord, how can you still use me as an instrument to, to bring people into the reconciliation you made possible? And are there obstacles in my heart that still need to be rooted out? Just a couple things to be aware of. Let's get into Mark chapter 4. Jesus is going to show us in two there are parables, they might even be shorter than parables, they're not very long, two illustrations, what the kingdom of God is like. And if you read the gospel of Mark, you'll find that that three-word phrase is repeated a lot, the kingdom of God. And in the first four chapters of Mark, right before Jesus tells these parables, uh, Jesus is very busy and he's very active. He's doing things like casting out demons calling disciples to him, healing people, teaching people. And it's happening seemingly ongoing, rapid fire. The gospel of Mark takes almost a breathless pace. And one of the phrases you see over and over and over in the gospel of Mark is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And another thing he keeps saying is the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. And it's not a whole sermon today on defining what the kingdom of God is and isn't. We spent six weeks on it last year in our Wednesday night Bible studies. But it's a little bit of a difficult concept to grab onto. It's abstract. It's not concrete. Most of us who've grown up in the western part of the world, and that's not all of us, but that's me and many of us, I have no idea what it's like to live in a kingdom with a king. I don't know what it's like to live in a gated, walled city. No idea. But I know that it was an idea familiar in the ancient Near Eastern culture. And one of the ways Jesus describes God's rule, his reign, how he relates to us as like a king to its kingdom. So I think it would be helpful for us to understand these two parables we're about to read. Jesus picks them specifically in an answer to his own rhetorical question. How can I help you understand what the kingdom of God is like? What can I compare it to? I better give you multiple stories. There's no one story that summarizes all the kingdom of God. Can't give it to you in a nutshell. But a king is not a king without a kingdom. You can have a crown and not be a king, right? You can go through the Burger King drive-thru today and tell them, I need three crowns. And listen, I read an article in my news feed that the franchises are now supposed to give crowns to everybody that asks. So you can go through Burger King, because Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, but you can go through Burger King, you can get your crown, and you can wear it. Doesn't make you a king. Right? I know. I'm sorry. It makes you a Burger King. If that's really your lot in life, it will make you a Burger King. But a king without a kingdom isn't a king. A kingdom is what a king rules over, reigns over. One of the ways the Bible describes God to us is that he is a king, but not just that. It goes a little farther, doesn't it? He's the king of kings, king of all things. Yeah, there's other kings, but even among the kings, there's a king of the kings. He has no colleagues. He has no equals. He alone is the king of kings. And Jesus wants people on earth, his main message is about the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about this kingdom. Now, the original hearers thought he was talking about their country, Israel. That 
Jesus was bringing news that a new kingdom is coming and it's going to look like a military leader that's going to take, that's going to kick the Romans out by force, rebuild the walls of their city and set up a new government. And they were right and wrong. Jesus is trying to describe to them what God's kingdom is like. What is the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom in general, it's what a king rules over. A kingdom has boundaries. A kingdom has a government. Kingdoms have economies, don't they? They have rules and laws. They have the way that there's relationships inside. It has a culture. The way that citizens treat each other. The way they relate to themselves and their neighbors and insiders and outsiders and the way they relate to the king. And you can describe people who live in a kingdom in one of two ways. They are citizens. And there's another way. They are subjects. And Jesus tries to help us understand the new type of everything that God wants to reintroduce into the world. And he puts it under this umbrella term of the kingdom of God, and he keeps saying it's near. And if you read to the end of the Bible, the end of the Bible doesn't describe uh, humans fleeing from the earth and, and getting on a rocket ship and heading out into outer space to find God's kingdom. What does it say? It talks about God's kingdom descending and reestablishing itself here on the earth. And what Jesus does through most of his teachings, Sermon on the Mount is a great place to go to see this, is Jesus does the best he can to describe to people how God's kingdom operates the complete opposite of the way the world does. It is an upside-down kingdom. But Jesus recognizes that we humans need help understanding something as abstract and difficult, and nuanced, and totally foreign as his kingdom. And so he gives lots of stories, lots of illustrations. And so in Mark chapter 4, he gives a series of parables. We're not looking at all of them today. There's two short ones where he talks about seeds, ground, and growth. And he says, this is another way you can understand the kingdom of God. You can't sum it all up in one parable. He gives a ton of parables. You don't look at them all. In, you can look at them individually, but you have to look at them as, as, as a group collectively as well. Not every parable addresses every nuance. But we're going to look at two. Last week, we looked at what the Bible says about how healthy Christians like healthy trees grow. What direction we grow in, down, up, and out. This week, we're going to look at the sequence or the order in which God's kingdom grows. In fact, I'll give it to you as a big idea, and then we'll read, these, we'll read these two parables together. Here's the big idea. The big idea is that God's kingdom, it grows, but it grows in a similar order to the sequence in which a tree grows. A planted seed first, then sprouts, and ultimately it grows into the largest tree of all. Let's read these two parables. I'll read them to you. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 34. The first parable is found only in Mark. He's the only one who writes it down. He's the only one who records it. The second one is found in most of the Gospels. First one, Jesus also said the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and it grows, but he doesn't understand how it happens. The earth produces crops on its own. First, 
a leaf blade pushes through. Then the heads of the wheat are formed, and finally the grain ripens. Those of you who have ever struggled to stay awake through a language arts class, you'll notice first, then, finally. He's putting it all in order here. He's indicating there's a sequence. Okay? And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle, for the harvest time has come. I love how transparent Jesus is in verse 30. Jesus is speaking, and as he speaks, he's saying out loud, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds. Let me just pause here for a second. There's enormous controversy over that statement right there. This statement right there, there is a movement that years ago tried to prove that the Bible is not inerrant, that Jesus makes a mistake, a scientific mistake here, and therefore all of his teaching is suspect. And it says, botanists have discovered seeds even smaller than the mustard seed. And so when Jesus says it is the smallest of all seeds, he's making a scientific inaccuracy, which means he really doesn't know enough about seeds, and therefore must not have created them, and is misleading, and all of his teaching is suspect. Jesus starts off by saying, I'm going to tell you a story, and then he uses hyperbole. And he uses the smallest seed that the ancient Near East people, not having access to all of the botanist studies in our... He uses the smallest seed they'd be aware of to make this comparison that something super, super small, the smallest thing you can think of can grow into something as big as you can think of. It's not Jesus being inaccurate. It's him being a really good communicator using the tool of hyperbole. But just giving that to you, just in case you didn't think that I knew that and that I'm leading you down a trail, just want to put it there. Verse 32. It's the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches, and birds can make nests in its shade. Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. You see that? Jesus used many stories Many illustrations. Not one story or illustration answers all of our questions about the kingdom of God. So can we not put that pressure on these two parables today? It's probably going to raise some questions for you like it has for me. And they're not all answered in this parable. This parable tells me something, some things, and I can fit it into some of the other things that I know about the kingdom of God to get a more complete picture. But there's a limit on how much of God's kingdom I can get Because he says he taught them as much as they could understand. In other words, there's more to know about God than you and I can possibly understand on our best day. I'm thankful that God's kingdom isn't small enough to fit inside my head. I'm glad it's bigger. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. But afterward, when he was alone with the disciples, he explained everything to them. So the big idea, one more time. God's kingdom grows in the similar order, the similar sequence in which a tree grows. We have two parables show us that here. You have a planted seed, a sprouted seed, which ultimately grows into a large tree. You can get even more detail. You have a planted seed. Then the seed sprouts. Then the seed pokes through the soil. Then the seed grows a strong stalk. Then it grows branches that go out, and then it produces fruit, and then ultimately the fruit is harvested. Those are all the steps we get here. There are stages. They have to come in that order. They don't skip steps. That's not rocket science to you, is it? Don't you already know this? Don't you know that, have I told you anything about seeds here that surprised you? You thought, I had no idea that you have to plant a seed before you get fruit. I thought you started with fruit and then you planted seeds. Man, this is just, you know this already. It's nature. It's natural. I'm not meaning to insult your intelligence. 
It's supposed to be this simple. God designed this whole process and baked into that design is the hope that if you can understand how this reveals to you how his kingdom works, you can grab it, believe it, and understand it better. So there is a little bit of a trickiness about this particular parable. Both of them. Um, Who is the farmer? What does the farmer stand for? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus saying, I'm the farmer, and this explains what I've been doing the first four chapters? I'm like a farmer scattering seed, and the seed is all of my ministry activity, my teaching, the healings that I'm doing, the driving out demons. I'm doing all these things because this is the way I'm trying to make people aware of what my kingdom is like. And the hope is that it will grab into people's hearts and it will produce change in their lives and that over time this small ragtag group of a dozen people will change the world. Yes, I believe it could be that. Could it also be possible that he's saying that the farmer is like any one of his followers whose activity should be scattering the seed of the kingdom of God through the word of God, through showing what the kingdom is, through explaining what the kingdom is, and by bringing our transformed lives to the world and scattering seed, knowing that if that seed happens to take root, it will also produce life in the people who hear it. Is it one? Is it the other? Could it be both? I think this is one of those parables where there's an immediate understanding of what it sounded like to the hearers first, and there's an embedded meaning that also Jesus knew would mean more to us reading it later on. And I think that those, both of those things can be understood from this story. It does explain, to a degree, what Jesus was doing in the first four chapters. He kept saying, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Let me tell you about it. Let me show you it. And they're saying, well, show us. He's like, I've been showing you. Well, what do you mean? Well, look at the people that I healed. There were blind people that came to me, and I touched them and gave them sight. And they're saying, yes, that was a miracle. That's great. Bring all the sick people here. And Jesus is saying, these are signs. They're arrows that point to heaven. And they didn't get it. And we don't today either. Miracles are supposed to be signs that build people's faith that God can do and perform the promises he said. Because how can you believe in an afterlife where you're going to get a healed body and a healed mind and a perfect body if you've never seen Jesus be able to do it? What Jesus does when he heals people is says, look, in my kingdom, I bring complete wholeness and health to people. You don't believe me? Watch. I can do it. And what we say is, Awesome, let's all run to him right now. We need healing right now. And the reality is what he's saying is, yes, I can heal, and sometimes I do. But the more important thing is that you understand it's not reckless for you to believe in an afterlife or you get a brand new body because I've already shown you I can do it. That's what my kingdom is like constantly. As he's teaching, he's going around teaching to people who will not follow him. He goes around speaking stories to people who will reject him. What's he showing us? That's what the kingdom of God is like. He's scattering seed. It's not precise. He's scattering it. What about these 12 that were following him, these common, ordinary nobodies? He's saying, I picked them because no one believed that these 12, that will be 11, can change the whole world. But I'm going to plant some seeds in their heart. The kingdom of God is going to be planted in heart, and that seed, not immediately, because God helped these poor 12, 
like the rest of us, their first couple years of following Jesus were rough. (laughs) But over time, these same men who ran away when Jesus was arrested, nearly all of them would eventually be martyred rather than renounce their faith. So yeah, part of this, a big part of it is Jesus saying, I am like the farmer scattering seed. The first parable he told, we didn't cover today. It's about the the sower and the seed. Do you remember that when farmer went out to sow seed and some fell on this soil, some fell on that soil, some fell on the other soil, some of it got eaten up, some of it burned up, some of it dried up, some of it found root, produced 30, 60, 100 fold. Then Jesus says, let me break it down for you. Here's what everything stands for. The seed is the word of God. This soil is this person. That soil is that person. Do you remember that one? Okay, what that, the point of that parable is about the role that the soil has in productivity of the, of the seed. It's not as much about the seed, it's about the soil. And what we're supposed to do as listeners is say, Jesus, I want to be the type of soil that's the good soil. And I need to be aware that there's different things in life and there's different choices that I can make that make the soil hard so that the seed can never penetrate it or I don't meditate on it or it gets swiped away before I get there. That parable emphasizes the role of the soil. These parables don't emphasize the roles of the soil. They emphasize the power of the seed. So I want you to understand, this parable is not saying that the soil has nothing to do with Christian growth. That you can just sit in church and just, you can just go to sleep, put your earbuds in, put your AirPods in there, and just, just have Bible verses playing all night, and you're just going to get up the next morning and be just like Jesus, that you have no role, you're just passive. That's not what it's saying, but it is emphasizing to you how powerful the kingdom of God is, that it can be something as small and insignificant as a seed, but packed. seeds are perhaps the most powerful thing on the face of the earth. They can break your driveway. They can move sidewalk. Packed inside of that seed. Packed inside of that seed. There's all this power, and it looks so ridiculously small. You'd never think, I need, you know, I need to jack up my driveway, so I'm going to just go plant some grass seeds underneath it. They'll do, you don't think that. You say, I'm going to go get the biggest jackhammer that I can and have at it. And yet, packed in that little seed is the power to move mountains, Jesus says. Packed into the seed, not packed into my efforts. Packed into that seed. So I just lifted out four things I think these parables tell us how the kingdom of God is like a seed, the order, the sequence in which we grow. Here's those four things. First, uh, much like a seed, the kingdom of God grows on its own. It grows on its own. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Pastor, you've already lost me. Seeds do not grow on their own. Okay, well, let me walk this out a little bit. A seed has its own vitality. It has its own virality. It's not as dependent upon you as it is upon God's power. It has an element of hiddenness and invisibility in the way and the rate that it grows. This story introduces us to one of the most incredible things in the Bible. And if I can get you off of Reddit and off of Instagram and off of your TikTok for just one moment, you've got to grab this. You've got to get this. This is one of the most incredible principles in all the Bible. The farmer does something absolutely insane in this story. Verse 27, night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows, but he doesn't understand how. Here's what the farmer does. Beginning of the story, what does he do? He doesn't sow the seed or plant the seed. What verb does the Bible use? He scatters the seed. 
indicates he grabs handfuls of it and flings it indiscriminately all over the ground. I don't know how you were raised. I was raised in a family that had gardens. That's not how we planted stuff. I know it might be hard for you to believe that in my family tree, there is an appreciation for spreadsheets and precision. My father is an avid gardener to this day. His family were gardeners. And when I grew up, we had gardens because we needed to have gardens to be able to eat a lot of those foods. Eventually, we didn't have to rely on it, but we still had gardens. Listen, my dad to this day can hand draw you the most precise garden you could ever imagine. In fact, he was, he was in the hospital not too long ago, fully recovered, thank God, was in the hospital. Uh, had, had COVID really got deep into him. But even while he was in the hospital, while he was recovering, found out one of the nurses wanted to start a garden. And my dad's ears perked up, and he just grabbed a little notebook and a pen. And how big and how wide and what kind of things you want to have. He mapped that whole thing out from memory. Here is a specific place where each one of those seeds is supposed to go. When we grew up, sowing seeds wasn't grabbing handfuls and throwing them near dirt. No, we put seeds the places we prepared for them to grow and nowhere else. And what does this farmer do? He scattered. Why on earth would the farmer scatter the seed rather than being so precise with each one? Because the farmer understood that his job was to scatter it and that God would take care of the rest. How much more bold would you be in scattering the transformed life that God is building in you if you didn't prejudice where you're scattering the seed based on whether you thought it was fertile or not? This farmer goes out and Jesus was doing the same thing. Some of those people were going to reject it. Not all those people were going to listen and be excited He's like the farmer. His job was to scatter the seed. And what do, what's the very next thing the farmer does after he scatters the seed? What's the very next thing he does to make sure that that thing grows up? What's he do? He goes to bed. Jesus is making a point here. That farmer scatters the seed, and his primary responsibility for the long-term growth of that seed is now done. He goes to sleep. And what is happening while he sleeps? Say it again. It's growing. Now, does he see it the next morning? Probably not. It's hidden. It's hidden under that dirt, under those weeds. Well, Pastor, it doesn't grow in its own. It, it, need, it, it, needs, it needs water. Exactly. Where the water come from? Where's the rain come from? God, or some really smart, you know, scientist in Dubai who figured out how to make rain. No, I'm just kidding. But, well, God brings the water ultimately. Oh, we might have to carry it from where it is. I can't produce water. God does that. Well, it needs light. Who does that? God, through the sun. You need weeding. Okay, yeah, Jesus has never shown up to help me weed. I get it. There's roles that the farmer played. His primary role, your primary role, 
my primary role, is not to decide whether or not this Christ-likeness is going to fall on only good soil and just be precise and prejudice myself against... Because listen, some of you wouldn't be where you are in Jesus today if somebody wouldn't have bypassed how you looked or seemed to them when they carried the seed of the gospel to you. It grows on its own. Once it's planted, that seed grows on its own. And it happens day and night, night and day, where we're awake. And it says the farmer doesn't understand how. How does a seed grow? Google that, and you can spend several days just reading a whole bunch of long articles. And before you send them to me, I read some of them, and my favorite part is after all the details and stuff in every one of these articles about how seeds grow, every single smart person who's written on these also say there's still an element of mystery to all of this. Exactly. How does a seed grow? It grows invisibly, hidden over time. Like my youngest is obsessed with measuring his growth. You know how it is when it's it's a kid that's not your kid. I was talking with uh, Jessica and Jean before the service about their son, Jericho. I was like, I don't see him every day, but I get to interact with him every couple weeks. And because he's so young, I feel like every time I see Jericho, I'm like, wow, look how you've grown and look at this new milestone you've hit and look at these new things you're doing. And when your kids are little, they're going through these things really fast. Now, sometimes as parents, you don't see it every day, but as an outsider, you say, wow, I haven't seen you in three weeks and look how much you've grown. Maybe it's like with a niece or a nephew or, or somebody else that you know. You haven't, seen them, you haven't seen them since the holidays and you see them six months later and they're like four inches tall and you're like, wow, look at how much you've grown. And yet if you sat and stared at them for 30 minutes, you would see nothing, nothing. My youngest, we have this growth chart that hangs on the wall in the bathroom. Confession, it's fallen down a few times. I'm not sure if it's gotten reinstalled at the exact point where it was. It has led to all types of controversy and accusations in our house. The growth chart is suspect, and there's many conspiracy theories. But the young one, when he wanted to get taller faster, measure me today, measure me again today, and he would get so angry. Because when you measure that thing every day, it's like, buddy, you're as tall as you were yesterday. You're as tall as you were yesterday. You're He'd get mad. Like, hey, why don't we measure every three months? Three months. Why don't we measure? Well, then when you measure him after three months, we saw a little growth. Well, what day did it happen? I don't know. He'll stand and watch himself in the mirror. I'm not growing. Because much like a seed, you and I don't grow spiritually that way either most of the time. But you know what I'm sure of? If God's kingdom and his gospel have been planted in your heart and you've received it in you, you're growing and you're changing. How? You're becoming more like Christ. Well, how? Gradually, incrementally, first, way under the surface, in a place that might not even be noticeable to you right away, where it might not show up this evening. Pastor, I prayed this morning to, for God to, to help me not ever be anxious again, and I believed it, and I meant it, and I felt relieved, and then I got in the car, and I felt anxious again. What is wrong? You're normal. Well, can't God take all my anxiety away just like that? Absolutely. Why doesn't he? Well, he doesn't always. Well, why? He tells you why. Because this is an ongoing process, and it takes time. But if his kingdom is in you, 
you are growing. Friends, you're growing. In the daytime, in the nighttime, in the mundane, ordinary, boring, ongoing. Haven't you ever just experienced some God moment when you were, it was just in the mundane, boring, ordinariness of life? I don't know why God chooses to talk to me while I'm showering. Maybe it's the only time that he gets uninterrupted of my attention. I don't know. I've felt spiritual growth in those moments. When I mow the grass, when I'm driving by myself in the car on a Friday. Yesterday, the six-year-old wanted me to bring upstairs the fireplace. Now, we have a fireplace you can bring upstairs. It's one of those ones you plug in the wall with the fake flames. Confession, the tree went down yesterday. No judging, please. The Christmas tree made it to the second week of January. It's like a new record in our house. And in its place, we brought up the fireplace. I was like, why is he obsessed with this? I plug it into the wall. He can take it from there. He knows how to fire the thing up, get it to the right temperature. He took off on a full sprint down the hallway, grabs an armload of books, carried them out, dumps them down in front of the thing, goes and grabs a blanket, gets it over there. Takes, rips the two pillows off behind me on the couch, puts one down, gets lined up, gets the books, gets all bundled up in the thing right with the book, and he says, Dad, I put a pillow here for you too. Do you want to come sit down here and read with me? My first thought was absolutely not. <laughs> I'm watching football. I'm comfortable. I don't want to get on the floor. My back's going to hurt. I'm, I'm going to be close to 50. I'm going to be down there a while. I'm going to have to make noises and groan when I get up. I'm not interested in the subject matter, you know. My second thought was absolutely my kid is at a point where he doesn't always want my attention. And the fact that he wants to spend time with me and he set up a pillow for me, I'm like, look, I don't even really, I'm not even really all that interested in the subject matter, but I'm interested in you. And I literally, I turned off the football game and and it was getting to be a blowout anyway, which helped. And I sat down, and I read the first where he said, Dad, you read too slow. I'll read. (laughs) And this little whisper, my dad, my heavenly dad says to me, this is the kind of joy you bring to me when you make space for me to sit next to you. Oh. Day or night, awake or asleep, invisibly. Sometimes you look over your shoulder and say, wow, I grew back then and you didn't even know when. It just, it grows on its own. We spend a lot of time as Christians sitting in God's presence, pulling out all the things in our life that need to be fixed that are broken, don't we? Aren't you aware of those things? In fact, I wonder, are you, if I ask you right now to just type out or jot down three things in your life that you know you need to surrender to the Lord today that are not, you probably could come up with that pretty quick. What if I asked you, can you write down three areas where you've grown? Why is that so hard? You're growing. And it is a process. Be patient, because if that word is planted in your heart, when you're asleep, when you're awake, and the up times and the down times and the rain and the snow and the and the wind, growth is happening because the kingdom has inside of it all the power it needs to grow. I need to move faster. Point number two. Much like a seed, the kingdom of God also grows in stages. Starts as a seed. The seed sprouts, actually starts in a seed that is planted, right? That's the third point. We'll get there in a second. Then it sprouts. 
Then it grows, but it's got to grow a little while, and then it gets shoots off the side and branches, and then fruit, and then you get to harvest of fruit. It grows in stages. I hate this. The few times I've tried to garden, I don't like preparing the soil. I don't like building the raised beds. I don't like the diagram. Well, I kind of like the diagrams. They're fun. The budgeting, the spacing out, the planting of the seeds, the covering up of the dirt, the wading and the weeding, don't like it. When I plant tomatoes, I'm not excited about any of the process except ripe tomatoes to eat, to put them in my face, to chew them, to swallow them, and to say, look what good of a gardener I am. That's not how this goes. There are stages to how God's kingdom grows in the world, in our hearts. I realize it could be theologically difficult to talk about how God's kingdom grows. I'm not trying to unwind it the whole back to say it's, God's kingdom is immature. Maybe expands or develops would be better words. But this happens internally in us. We grow internally in stages, generally speaking. We grow externally in our influence in stages from seed to stalk to harvest. This morning, before I left the house, I was giving my wife a hug before that I, I left, and she paused for just a moment. She said, do you get nervous before you preach anymore? And I said, yeah, like every single, like twice on Sunday and once on Wednesday. I get nervous. Absolutely I do. She's like, huh. She's like, because it doesn't seem to rattle you anymore. She's like, I remember not too many years ago, you couldn't sleep on Saturday nights. You were nauseous every Sunday morning. You were terrified to go to church. You'd be unapproachable for the 48 hours before you'd preach. You'd be so anxious and stressed and writing and rewriting and crumbling up paper and throwing it. And she's like, you just, it doesn't even seem like it rattles you anymore. And I said, that's one of the best compliments you could ever pay Jesus. Well, how did you change? And I I don't know. Well, when? What was it that changed that in you that you? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Happened in stages, I guess. Yes, I deal with anxiety about public speaking and it's particularly about teaching the Bible to people. A lot of, a lot riding on that for me, for you, because I'm supposed to be representing God to you. And that would really unsettle me. And then there's lots of other stuff that just unsettled me. And the most comfortable, the least nervous I would be is while I'm teaching. Literally about right here, I'm still nervous. I get here, something comes over me like an anointing. I'm not like being possessed or under a trance. Someone asked me that one Sunday we were in the high school, someone who was brand new to being saved. Um, and he said, he's like, I look at you every Sunday. And like, right before you go up, it's almost, are you going into a trance? Do you do self-hypnosis? I was like, I would try it if I knew how to do it, but I don't, no. And then 
I feel relaxed, and then as soon as I step here, I get to those steps, all the anxiety is waiting for me again. You went too long. You bored people. Eight people walked out in the middle of the service. This person wasn't here. That no one, was, you know, no one got saved today. You said this wrong. You flubbed on this. Someone's going to send you an email about that. You know you stepped on all those different things. And if you've never done this before, that makes no sense. If you've done this before, you totally know what I'm talking about. You just want to go home and spend the afternoon convincing yourself it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. Don't feel bad for me. That's just what comes along with public speaking. It just goes with it. But for some reason, it no longer undermines my entire week. I go to sleep on Saturday night, easily. I get up on Sunday with minimal terror about facing you. I'm able to be emotionally present with my boys when they want to read stories I'm not interested in on Saturday afternoon. Well, give me the secret to that. Here it is. I don't know. Walk close to Jesus for a long time. And that seed will grow in stages. And that seed in my life of the kingdom of God and his peace, his confidence, who's most responsible, who's less responsible for all of this enterprise, who I am in him, what the results mean, what they don't mean. Over time, he is forming the right, answer to all those things in my heart and the result of that is growth but it happens in stages can you please be patient with yourself on some of these things happens in stages seeds that sprout there's life and a lot of times you don't a lot of the growth is happening even though you don't see it look when I plant those tomato seeds back in the day and it'd be three four days I saw nothing I was tempted to go out and dig back in those holes and see what's going on down there if I could even find it. In fact, one time I did, I couldn't even find the seed. I was really messed up. I don't know what happens down there. But I know that when it pokes through the ground, it says not only is there growth today, but there's been growth going on the whole way along that I didn't see, praise his name. In you, there's growth in stages. It happens internally, and then it pokes through externally, and it matures, and it strengthens. And over time, not only is it strong enough to push you upwards, but it will push you outwards so that people can see your transformed life. The very uh, This quote was shared with me this week by a good friend of mine. We were talking about spiritual retreat. He told me about a retreat he just went on, and this was kind of the, the statement of the retreat, is that your transformed life is the best gift you can bring to the people you're trying to reach. Your transformed life. The evidence of God's kingdom replacing your kingdom in your life. Grows in stages. Happens internally. Happens happens externally. Guys going around scattering seed. You know what that means? Every single evangelistic effort you make counts for something. Well, pastor, I've been casting seed and casting seed and casting seed, and I'm not seeing any salvation, so I'm going to move on and do something different. I've been asked before, how many people have we seen saved at movies in the park? I haven't seen anybody saved at movies in the park. We ought not do it. What? You're saying we're responsible for the harvest. We're not. We're supposed to be scattering seeds. We quit most evangelistic effort we do if we only measured it by the harvest. There's people you've stopped reaching out to because you're convinced they're closed and not worth the effort. What if I told you the harvest wasn't up to you? 
We're called to scatter seeds. We're called to water. We're called to lead. And I don't care if I even know what role I play in the process. If this story is true and that the kingdom of God can grow on its own, then I don't have to withhold the life I should live out of fear that it won't produce. That's not up to me. My job is to scatter the seed. That's it. Well, what if the person in the grocery line doesn't accept Jesus? That's up to him. Your job, scatter the seed. That's up to her. Your job, scatter the seed. I got to keep going. Number three, seed has to be planted before it can produce. Kingdom of God has to be planted before it can produce. He did talk, you know, why would you put a, one of his parables just before this? He talks about you don't put a, a, a bowl over a candle. It can't give light if you suppress it. Here's what I know about seeds. As powerful as they are, all you have to do to keep them from being powerful is leave them in the bag in your shed. You go get you a bag of azalea seeds. You put them in the shed. You leave them out there. You will not go out there the next day and find azaleas growing out of your shelf. If you do, you have discovered something that can go viral. That's a crazy thing about seeds. As powerful as they are, powerful enough to break your driveway, when you leave them wrapped up and not planted anywhere, they don't produce. They have to be planted first. You can sit in this church or any other church and listen to, and I watch this happen. I still don't understand it. Because I know every Sunday, in some sense, I'm scattering seed on rocky soil. You don't pay attention. You don't think. You forget about it as soon as you leave here. You can't wait to, I don't know why you come. You come to see how early you can get out. What are you doing this for? Put us both out of our misery. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But I know that. I watch it. I see you. You see me. And I can see as the Spirit helps me sometimes, and I see where there's hard soil. But guess what? I'm still here. I'm not giving up because God hasn't given up on you. Because one of these, well, Pastor, why do you say salvation the same way every week? Why don't you mix it up? Because I'm trying to teach you to be ready when you have an opportunity to do the same thing. I'm scattering that seed, hoping that one week it goes into your brain, it makes its way to your heart, you grab it and it produces life. If I expect you to lead someone to Jesus, you should know how. All you need to do is believe and repent, believe you need to be saved, believe God can save you, believe he will save you. If you ask, now use your own words and tell him. How hard is that? I say it every week. Every week I talk about being and making disciples. Every week from this pulpit, no matter who stands here, we talk about a journey of Christ-likeness. And then I get people, I've been here for six months and I haven't grown. Not my fault. You've got to soften that soil of your heart. Pay attention to what God is saying. Or you're boring. Go find someone else who lights your fire. Seriously, there's plenty of people. You need, if that's really what it is, if it's the sower's fault, if it's the farmer's fault, go find one who you'll receive their seed. Well, I can pay attention. I get more. Awesome. Then be planted there and grow and produce has to be planted. If you don't believe there's a better hope for you, you're going to live a miserable life. You've got to let that be planted in your heart. If you believe there's no purpose for you, it's not going to produce life in you. 
If you don't believe you're really forgiven, if you don't believe he really loves you, if you don't believe you're really accepted, if you don't believe there's really enough grace for you, if you don't believe there's really more for you to do in this life, if you don't believe it, it's not been planted and it won't produce. That's why we scatter seeds. I could scatter a billion different seeds or I could take the same hundred and just keep scattering them over and over and over and over again. And some of you know what that's like. You've been planting and planting and planting in someone or something, and it's not produced yet. Don't stop planting. Don't stop watering. Don't stop weeding. It has to be planted before it can produce. The kingdom of God appears so small and so insignificant and unimpressive. What unlocks its capacity? It has to be planted. But if it's planted, oh, if it's planted, it'll produce. I had a treat this morning. I got to stand in worship next to two young men in our congregation, a fifth grader and a sixth grader. And out of the corner of my eye in the middle of the second song, I looked over. I heard the one next to me singing, and he can sing really well. I'm making a note in my mind. I look at the other one. He's just got his eyes closed, hands up, sixth grade. No one said, young man, raise your hands, or you can't sit up front. Now, I won't say what I turn around and I look. I won't say that. <laughs> because I'm not here to observe and critique. But can I tell you what that did in my heart in that moment? Then the third song starts, and I hear the young man next to me just, the very first word without looking at the screens, knew all the lyrics. That's not because he's in these services every week. It's because somewhere in his life, some family members are watering into him, planting into him a culture where it's okay within their family to express themselves to God in worship. Fifth grade. Some of you wish, and I do too, that at fifth grade I was serious about Jesus as those two young men. Something has been planted in their heart. Well, who planted it? Don't know. Mom, dad, church leader, don't know. Doesn't matter. But it is producing Christ-likeness in them. They are unashamed and not embarrassed to sing to the Lord, to close their eyes, to lift their hands, to worship. They are not doing it to be seen. They're not even thinking about it. There's just a purity and an innocence about their worship. And that brings more joy to my heart than if we filled this place to capacity five times a week and everybody went out unchanged. Number four. Ultimately, what God's kingdom produces in our lives is growth, automatically, inevitably, ongoing incremental growth that grows in stages. And when it's planted, it does ultimately produce. We touched on this last week. You can grow branches large, wide, and strong enough for rehoming outsiders. Now, there's controversy in that first parable because it brings up the idea of inerrancy. There's controversy in this second parable. And the specific controversy is, who do the birds in the parable of the mustard seed represent? Do they represent people outside of God's kingdom coming in through the welcoming branches of growing mature believers who have reached out to them and make a place for them to come in and find a new home and community that they always wanted to find shade in the branches to find food and shelter and protection? Or, like Heitzig and some others say, these birds represent uh, infiltrators saboteurs who are 
who come into the kingdom as outsiders with the intention of looking like insiders and leveraging the appearance of being part of the kingdom to be enemies of the seed. And they'll say, if you look at this other parable that Jesus told where the birds came and ate up the seed, if we take what the birds represented in that story and we have to then plug that into this story, I don't agree with that interpretation. I don't think Jesus always intended one element of one parable to have the same definition in all of the parables. I think sometimes he says the farmer represents him. Other times the farmer, there's other stories where the farmer represented someone who had no relationship with God whatsoever. So what do we do there? I think the better context of this ties back into the vision that Daniel saw of the great tree that God promised would grow out of Grow out, of, uh, grow out of Israel, that even outsiders, people who weren't ethnically Jews, would be able to come in through salvation. And those trees grow wide and strong and bring outsiders. And this is where this teaching series pivots. Because what this tells me is that what God's concerned about with his kingdom is absolutely growing you and I into Christ-likeness. But by mentioning outsiders, what he's saying is what he imagines is that his kingdom is not just about you and me. It's about the world we live in. It's about the communities that we live in. That our growth is supposed to stretch us wide enough that our transformed lives branch out and intersect others. And it gives them a way into the kingdom through the lives and the ministry that we have. And a lot of times the way that that happens is also in stages. And about 18 months ago, I had this idea as I was driving home from Pennsylvania on a Friday. It just kind of dropped in my heart. I was asking the Lord, Lord, what is next for, for Echo? What do you have for us in terms of a vision? We have the roots. We have this tree. We are committed to being and making disciples. We teach your word. We do everything that we can to keep ministry simple. It's too simple for some, not simple enough for others. Could care less. I'm just trying to obey you. And what you've given in my heart is to our approach for ministry. We want to prioritize teaching the word, teaching the word deeply, broadly, getting the nuance, the backstory, everything. We want to anchor ourselves in your word. And my trust is that, God, as we anchor ourselves in that, you will grow us into the healthy, strong church you want us to be. And I don't want to divert from that. But, Lord, strategically, what's next for us? We know there was a season where it was time for us to, to move into a more permanent location. We've seen you do that. What's next? And as I sat there, my mind immediately went to what immediate needs in our community is echo position to serve? I have a heart for the five square miles around this property. I know a lot of you drive farther away than that. I'm thankful for that. There are people within the shadow of this church that need Jesus. And so I began to just think practically, Lord, what are, what are the local needs of our community and what can we do to help? And there's other, some churches in this area are really making headway on some of these needs. We don't need to duplicate what they're doing, but is there a hole somewhere Echo can fill? And my mind kept coming back to uh, people's mental health and people's emotional health. And I'm like, well, Lord, I don't know what that looks like. And immediate idea is like, you know, I, Lord, are you asking us to think about, you know, launching, opening, resourcing, beginning a counseling center? And I felt something spark in my heart, but the sec- and I felt excited immediately because I'm like, that is absolutely something that I think would be an enormous ministry in this community. How many people out there need, all, almost all of us would benefit from some ongoing mental health care, mental health checkups, and just having people that we can talk to about our our, our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and, and, and deal with some of those things in professional capacities. And, um, and there's so much more of a need than there are providers. 
And I also know that we were created in God's image, and he's here to restore all of us, body, soul, and spirit. We're hitting the spiritual pretty heavy. That's what we pastors are gifted to help with. But when it comes to some of those matters, it's beyond my expertise. I don't want to just send people away and say, oh, I can't help you go. Hopefully you find a good match with somebody somewhere. I want to do better. So there's excitement. And then at the same time as this seed is falling into the soil of my heart, I'm like, Lord, first of all, I have no experience in opening a counseling center. I don't know how to do that. I don't have time to do that. Lord, you know our budget. We don't have money to do that. All the objections, right? I just let it sit there. And I know when it's me and I resist, if it's just my flesh, it goes away. But when it's God, it is stubborn and persistent. I let it sit there for a little while. A few months after that on a Sunday morning, I want to get the order right. I I saw a couple fellows over on this side of the room sitting kind of where you guys are sitting. um, And and, and, and they had baseball hats on. And I'm like, I don't recognize those hats. Those are cool baseball hats. And I know a lot about baseball. So I went over and introduced myself. And as we got to chatting a little bit, uh, one of the guys said, listen, man, like, like, listen, in the line of work that I do, and said something else, I said, oh, well, what do you do? He said, I'm a substance abuse counselor. Like, oh, that's interesting. Don't run into many of those guys. Um, I said, well, let's, let's, hey, let's get together and talk this week. And we did and found out some more of his story. And um, oh, that's pretty cool. And I th- then I came back and said, what God said about starting a counseling center. And I'm not thinking like, oh, this guy's coming to help us do this. But it's kind of random that he put somebody in my orbit that knows this space. About two weeks later, I met another young man at a Discover Echo event that we had here, and he was sitting at my table. He had been attending Echo for a little while, and and he mentioned that he had a hobby of collecting baseball cards, and that doesn't usually come out much, and I was just like, that's like one of my hobbies. And so we got to talking, and we immediately started making plans to go share our hobby together and go to different card shows. And in in the miles we've logged on the highway, one of the first things as we got to chat, I said, well, you know what I do. What do you do for a living? He said, well, I'm a counselor. I'm like, oh, huh, that's random and we started to talk more about his vision for counseling and this and that and the other and I shared with him a little bit about this and he could not have been more enthusiastic I was like well that's kind of cool a month later I see another couple sitting in the back on the right like I don't recognize them let me go introduce myself got to chat with them a little bit we made plans to have lunch the next week we're sitting around the table with others and it comes up what do you do and you know where this is going right I say to the husband, you know, the husband shares what he does. The wife says, well, I'm a, I'm a licensed, certified, practicing counselor. I'm like, does everybody who's attending this church, you know, are they all counselors? I'm like, what are you doing? You know, and, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe. I sh- and with each of them, I kind of shared a little bit about the vision. They're all like, listen, Pastor, whatever we can do to help you think and plan through that. I'm like, that's cool. Well, later last year, you know that I took, some, I took three days off, and I attended a pastor's conference in San Diego. Here's what you need to know about me. I am an introvert. And... I get most anxious in environments where it's a social setting and I know no one. Like the meet and greet and mingling, I don't, no meet, no greet. Well, I like meet, but no meet, no greet, no mingle. Not really me. And that's all this event is. And it's with the group that makes me most uncomfortable, and that is colleagues, other pastors. This is unfair to say I'm painting with too broad of a brush. But a lot of my experience have been I go into this room with a bunch of strange, not strange pastors, but pastors who are strangers to me. And the small talk, all I want to know is, where are you? What's your position? How big is your church? How much has it grown? How much money do you have? How big is your staff? And they decide based on those answers if I make the cut to sit at their table. 
Now, that's not always the case, but that's just with me. It has to happen once or twice, and then I just throw everybody in that bucket. They're all like that, and they're not. But I agree only because my mentor, Chris Songson, he's, he's my coach, and he asked me two years ago, can you come to our conference in Chicago in, in February? No. Chicago in February? That's crazy. Next year, hey, can you come to our conference? You know, come to our conference in Chicago in February. Pay the bills, go to this, go to that. No, thanks. Uh, hey, I thought I'd try again this year. Uh, we're having a conference in San Diego in September. I'm like, let me clear my calendar. <laughs> Something about San Diego in the fall sounded better than Chicago in the winter. And I'm on the airplane headed out there. What had happened the morning when I'm flying out there is my youngest had a meltdown that morning about me going out of town. I got him onto the bus, and it took longer to get him onto the bus. And so I hop into the car to leave, and when I'm all the way to the airport, I realize I didn't have my carry-on bag with my laptop, my Bible, my books, my chargers, my electronics. So I'm about to make this long flight with nothing. So, you know, I, I get myself a little notebook and a pen. I'm like, well, I'll just use the time on the plane out here to just write some things out. And on the plane to San Diego, I wrote out a vision plan called Branch Out and what it would look like for Echo, what I felt God was calling us to branch out, the people groups that I felt like him putting on my heart, that we need to make an intentional collective effort to reach out to, to stretch our branches towards families and children with special needs, seniors in our community who feel disconnected and isolated, and specifically uh, people within our community that uh, have mental health needs. And I started to write the whole thing out. And man, it came to me clear, and I'm writing things out, and it's coming together, and then I have all these questions, just tons of them that I have no answers to and no internet, and just, just writing them all out. Well, I get out to San Diego. I'll fast forward through the story. I, the first night was I got the little schedule, meet and greet. I'm like, oh, I hate meet and greets. Um, and I was hoping I couldn't find the group. I'm like wandering around. I'm like, well, I don't know where they are. I gave it a shot. Better go back to my room and look at the ocean. You know, like, um, and then I hear, if you know Chris Songson, he has a voice that can be heard about 800 miles away. And I just hear this, hey, there she is. There they are. Oh, welcome. Come on. I'm like, oh, no, I can't. It's not plausible deniability anymore. I have to go. I just followed the voice. And there he was and all the strangers. And so I went to the meet and the greet and did that until the moment it was over. And then I went back to my room, and I saw the next thing, 9 a.m. roundtable discussion. I'm like, oh, another thing I look forward to. I'm like, I hope they make us all stand up and introduce ourselves to the room and give three fun facts about ourselves. Um, so I show up that morning. I got there five minutes early, and I was still among the last to arrive. And all these people who pretty much knew each other from the West Coast had filled in all these round tables. And when you're an introvert, round tables are terrifying. And um, I'm like, oh, there's, there's one empty table, and that's where I'm headed. Now, it happened to be at the front of the room with the little projector propped up to face towards the screen. I'm like, I think this is the table where the presenter is going to just present from, so probably no one else is going to sit there. So I sat in that seat. I get there. I have my breakfast, my notebook. Everybody else is behind me. I don't have to make eye contact. I can look to the front. Don't have to interact. And someone comes and sits. There's six empty seats. He sits next to me. That is a violation of introvert policy. You do not do that. You leave an empty space. He sits down next to me. How you doing? Uh, good. What you doing over here all by yourself? I'm like, I'm trying to avoid others. Uh, I'm an introvert. He's oh, I'm just going to sit here. Well, let's talk. I'm like, oh, man, what is this guy doing? He's obviously been on his fifth cup of coffee for the day. Because I'm Jeff Baker. I'm the executive director of this. I'm like, oh, man, the executive director. There's going to be no small talk here. 
well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I was like, well, I'm from Baltimore. And he goes, ooh. I was like, why does everybody do that out here when I tell him I'm from Baltimore? He's like, well, I've seen The Wire. I'm like, it's worse. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm from Baltimore. He's like, oh, yeah, Chris, Chris has told me about you. You're the guy with the this and the that. I was like, yeah, you meet in a converted commercial space? I said, yeah. He's like, yeah, he told me about you. He said, he said uh, you need to get to know Phil Nauer because in spite of how he looks, he's really smart. I said, what? None of this is making me feel any better about people. And he says, so, you know, so tell me a little bit about your church. What are you up to? And I'm like, I'm not going to get out of this. I'm just going to scare him off. I was like, well, since you ask, um, you know what? I have just been on the airplane out here. I don't even know why I'm here in San Diego, to be honest. I don't know why he invited me out here. Um, but uh, we're getting ready to, I'm thinking about planning a counseling center. And, you know, I don't have any idea. I'm in the beginning stages. I threw out the whole vision and everything else about it. He said, uh-huh. I just threw it all there. I'm like, he is going to leave me alone. He's not going to want to have any. As soon as I'm done talking, he says, do you know, last week we opened the doors to our first counseling center. I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, uh, and he started the next 30 seconds. He answered the first three questions on my page that I hadn't even written out about. I won't even give you all the legal terms behind it. It's like, this is the model we approached. This is how we did it. This is how we staffed it. He's like, I've just been asking God to put someone around me that I can share all this information with. And he's like, here you came the whole way out to San Diego to be all by yourself, and look who God sent to sit right next to you. (laughs) He's like, I want your contact information. I'm going to walk you through this whole process. And I'm like, okay, I guess we're doing a counseling center. I have nothing left. I have put God in a corner and said, I will do this, but you better be very clear because I am not qualified to do this. And I felt God just say, that was the first conclusion you needed to come to. I'm not going to pick somebody who knows how to do this. They'll take all the credit. But man, if you don't care who gets the credit, look what God can do. So I I share that with you to know that even in my stubborn, hardened heart, sometimes a little seed gets down in there. And once that seed is in there, even though I've tried to help it not grow, it grows. It grows in ways that have been invisible and hidden. But I feel that poking now through the soil. And a big part of what Echo's vision for branching out is going to be is that we are pursuing what it would look like to launch and open and resource a counseling center. Not staffed with well-intentioned pastors and volunteers. Those are train wrecks for counseling. I don't mean that negatively towards anybody else. But with something that is done with excellence. With people professionally trained and feel called by God to lead that charge. So that we can have an opportunity to help people in our community find healing and health for the way that they think. Because how can you grow in a relationship with God when your mind is so broken? God cares about the whole person. And I am confident that this is, an, this is a, an idea that is a vision, that is a seed that is going to sprout and it's going to grow. Well, Pastor, how? I don't know yet, but we're getting answers. I know that all of those counselors that I mentioned to you are now active parts of this church, and they meet with me once a month on a Zoom call, and they're helping me form some of these ideas. Our board is working with me and looking through the other side of this, and I'm not going to bore you with details and things like that today, but I want you to know this The way that this idea works in me is probably the way some God ideas work in you too. 
you get a seed of an idea that seems to come out of left field, and it's exciting and it's terrifying, and you might put it away for a while, but it keeps on coming back. God eventually convinces you that it's him and not you, and you either have to say yes or pick someone else. Let Moses tell you how that went. I question God's choice sometimes of who he picks when he picks me. Like, are you sure? (laughs) Probably like those 12 are like, really? Change the whole world? Us? We can't even decide who's going to sit around the dinner table in the right order. What are we going to do to change the world? I just say, here's the soil of my heart. Plant that thing in me. Plant that thing in us. And growth is up to you. Amen? Let me pray over you this morning. Worship team, will you come? If you're ready to begin a relationship with Jesus this morning, you need to know that you need to be saved because, like me, you've sinned against God. You've disobeyed him, and our conscience and our heart tells us that's true. We know that we're broken. We know we're not perfect. We know we should be living a better life than we are. The solution that the Bible says is Jesus. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived and should be living, but we haven't and we aren't. And then he took the punishment that should be ours, not his, but he took it on himself and he, he volunteered to be our substitute to stand in and take God's settled judgment against our sin. He took that on himself. The punishment didn't just vaporize. God already doled out the punishment I deserve for my sin. But he put it on Jesus, not on me, not on you. And then as a sign to show us that he truly had defeated the two things that we can't, and that is death and sin, he rose from the dead in a new body that was incorruptible to show us that we can place our hope that if we put our faith in him, that he can do the same in us. He's just the first fruit, but not the last fruit of the resurrection from the dead. So the way that you come into God's kingdom is that you confess. You believe in your heart and that belief bubbles up into words of your mouth that says, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus can save me. I believe he will save me. And I surrender to his lordship in my life. And if that's what you're ready for today, then that's all you have to do. You can do that right now. Please do that right now. Just confess to him in your own words your belief in him, your belief in your sinfulness, your readiness to accept forgiveness and surrender your life and take up his. To stop being your own king and leave that kingdom and come into his as his subject. You can pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of all my sins. Cleanse me from all things that are unrighteous in me. I welcome your kingdom into my heart. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my life and I surrender your leadership as you day by day gradually under the surface and then bubbling out into my life as you change me day by day into being the exact person of Jesus. Help me to be like him. In your name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, you're saved. Would you do something brave? I'm going to count to three. If you prayed that prayer with me, would you just slip up a hand and make eye contact with me? You can put it right back down. Anybody pray with me? One, two, three. Anybody at all this morning? Thank you. Anyone else? 
Heavenly Father, we all lay our hearts before you today. Have your way in us and through us. In your name we pray, amen. If you're willing and able, stand with me this morning. I want to challenge you to join me with something. Join me in something. Beginning next Sunday, we're going to start 21 days of prayer and also fasting. Yay, right? Fasting is setting aside something from your diet in order to experience a new level of depending upon and surrendering to God's sustaining power in your life. Now, there's reasons why you wouldn't fast if there's health issues or things associated with you. I'm not asking you to do this. If you don't feel God inviting you into this, here's what I'm asking you to do. Next seven days, Lord, are you inviting me into three weeks of a time of prayer and fasting? Most of you will probably enter into a a partial fast. The Bible says what I'm doing. The partial fast that I'm doing is pretty much like a, a fast that Daniel took in the Old Testament. No meats, no sweets. No breads, no sugars, no fizzy drinks. Um, That will be a challenge for me. All kinds of reasons why you fast. You fast before your blood pressure. You fast before this and that and the other. This is not that. This is spiritual fasting. These are for spiritual reasons. This is not a hunger strike to manipulate God into giving you a raise. The only object of fasting is him. That's our feast. And what fasting does is it, teaches us a new level of sacrifice, a new level of attention, a new level of just surrender to him, of really trusting him to overcome. Our stomachs can be pretty powerful and dictate our whole lives. And it's about submitting ourselves to his leadership for an increased awareness. That's what I'm fasting from. What I'm fasting for is just that God will do a deep cleanse in me. That he'll look at anything that has built up over time that needs to be brought out and dealt with. I don't look to that part, but I look forward to that part, but I do look forward to the freedom that comes when he deals with those things. I'm just saying, God, in this 21 days, squeeze out from me anything that doesn't belong there. Help me to hear you and see you more clearly. And as I'm putting aside any foods that are not good for me, I also want my spirit to be clear from anything that's not good for me. I've heard some people say, I'm fasting social media, I'm fasting this. I would just encourage you to be careful about saying fasting that. You can say I'm setting it aside for a while. I don't want to be legalistic. Fasting really refers to diet. There's nothing in the Bible to say fasting social media. But if you feel like during this time you want to set aside or you want to step away from some things that can be distracting, I encourage you to do that. Okay. Um, but I want to invite you into that. We're going to start next Sunday. We're going to start with communion together. And it's going to be a shorter message next week. I'm leaving time for our pastors to be available to pray with, with anybody in the congregation who would like prayer. The specific thing we want to pray with you about is what can we stand with you for during this 21 days? Is there something that you're hoping to experience in God over these next 21 days that you can just share with us and we can pray over you about and be cheering you on together? So that's how we're going to begin this next Sunday. Our welcome team's coming now. We're going to give you an opportunity to give. Our worship team is going to lead us in a concluding song. Our prayer team is coming, and then they're here and available to serve you. If you'd like prayer about anything at all, please come see Suba. Um, I'll come stand over here, and you can, you can come see me. I'd be happy to pray with you as well. Um, and then once we've sung and prayed together, Pastor James will come and dismiss you. Heavenly Father, we love you. May the soil of our hearts be soft enough that the seed doesn't hit it and bounce off but that it takes root, could be buried in the soil of our heart and begin to change us. And Lord, help us individually and as a church to branch out so that others can see the work of your kingdom in us.
and make their home here. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with Him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.